Well, good morning. Before we get going today, I want to celebrate with you. I let you know uh, last Sunday, of course, was Easter Sunday, and we uh, were able to share in that amazing experience of worshiping the risen Lord with over 2,100 people here at Southwinds Church. And uh, we're really excited about that. We, we actually had more people last Sunday than we've ever had before, and uh, we're just praising God and praying that God will open the doors that enable us to continue to connect with those people and, and uh, meet them where they are and help them follow Jesus or meet Jesus, whatever the needs may, may be. So just want you to know about that and let, let you rejoice uh, in knowing how God did uh, some incredible work uh, in our midst this last week. Uh, also, before we jump into our new series, there's a couple things I want to share with you and remind you of that are happening actually just this next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be our next baptism. And there are many people that have indicated this is the next step that they need to take in their discipleship journey of following Jesus Christ. And we would love to include you in that. And so I'm just going to ask you if you would sign up today. You can do that on your Connect card. Uh, you can put that on the offering bag or you can take it uh, to the info table in the lobby. You can also sign up online by uh, going to uh, baptism at southwinds.org. Send us an email and just say, I want to register for that. Uh, we hope that you will just uh, get involved in that. We're going to have a great celebration next Sunday afternoon. Also next Sunday, we are going to be launching our, our spring semester of small groups. And we want you to know today is a day that you can enroll in a group if you don't have one out on the courtyard. Uh, we believe around here at Southwinds that circles are better than rows. And rows are good. We're glad that you're here to worship and learn today, but we also need circles in our lives. We need to be in a group with other people that we can really get to know, and they can get to know us, and we can share life and, and do life together. And so we want to encourage you in that. Uh, we, we have groups every day of the week, all kinds of groups. There really is something for you, uh, no matter who you are and where you are. And so I want to encourage you after service to stop by uh, the small group table. Pastor Chris Martinez, our small group's pastor, is going to be there. You can talk to him and get your questions answered uh, about that. Well, today is the beginning of our brand new series, Finding Financial Freedom. And for the next few weeks together, we are going to be looking at God's Word, and we're going to be learning how the Bible gives us very practical guidance on some very real-life issues like debt and, and savings, other things. But before we get to that, we need to talk about our hearts. Because the Bible shows us again and again and again that real financial freedom always, always, always is a matter of the heart. And so today, to deal with that, we're going to talk about stuff, our stuff. And you know how it goes with stuff, right? We see stuff and we want stuff, so we buy stuff. And then we insure stuff. And, and then we find ourselves comparing our stuff to other people's stuff. And then sometimes some of us pay lots of money to store all the stuff that we don't have room for, right? And the Bible actually has a lot to say about stuff. The Bible talks to us about who owns stuff and and what the purpose of stuff is and how we should look at our stuff. And have you ever noticed that stuff has a way of getting a hold of us? The Bible tells us there is a kind of power to stuff. And you see this real early on in the life of a human being. 
You know, when human beings reach the age of two, they have a couple of favorite words, right? One of them is the word no. And they love to say that word. Anyone want to guess what the other favorite word is? Mine, mine. And you know, as an adult, you hear that, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it, when a two-year-old says to you, mine, because they didn't earn any of that stuff. It was all given to them, right? And they can't even take care of it very well. They're always losing that stuff. And you know as an adult that that stuff they say is mine could be taken from them in an instant, right? The stuff really isn't theirs at all. It's just an illusion. You know, two-year-olds are kind of funny like that, aren't they? When we get older, we get more stuff. Have you ever noticed as you go along in life, stuff seems just to proliferate, right? You, you get a house, and then you, you need stuff to put in the house, right? And after a while, your house is full of stuff, so what you next need to do is you need to get a bigger house to put more stuff in. An author named Paul Pearsall writes about how people find it difficult to give their stuff away. He says, many people can't bring themselves to get rid of any of their stuff. He says, you may require a closet exorcist to help you. Anybody here need one of those? <laughs> a trusted friend can help prevent the restuffing phenomenon. Restuffing happens when in the process of cleaning out closets and drawers, we are somehow stimulated to acquire new stuff. Beware of stuff co-addicts who may see closet cleaning as a chance to acquire your stuff for themselves from your stuff supply. He says, such friends are likely to go with you on a restuffing exposition. And some people, well, they have kind of a spiritual gift of acquiring stuff. Who has that gift of acquiring stuff? I, I see those hands right, right across there. Well, people just go through life and they get a lot of stuff and then they die. And then what happens to their stuff? Well, their kids argue over who's going to get their stuff. See, Think about that. People die, and then people who haven't died yet, pre-dead people, <laughs> they go over to the house, and they go through your stuff, and, and, and they decide what's going to be their stuff. They say, this is my stuff now. And then one day they die, and all that stuff goes to someone else, and it just goes on like that generation after generation after generation, and People come and people go and, you know, nations go to war over stuff and people sometimes have their families split apart because of stuff. Sometimes friendships die because of stuff. And success and identity, we, we measure that by our stuff. People just spend their whole lives worrying about it. Don't know if I got enough stuff. Need more stuff. I need better stuff. Do you know husbands and wives argue more about stuff than anything else. It is the number one cause of divorce. And prisons are full of people who committed crimes to acquire it. And it's all just stuff. I want you to listen to what a very wise man by the name of Solomon said about stuff. We find 
his words in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. And maybe you know his story, and if you want to, you can go ahead and turn there. Solomon was the wisest man of his day, the wisest man in the world. He was a great scholar and a great writer. Everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted to talk to him. He was so incredibly wealthy. It's just unimaginable. We're told he had 40,000 horse stalls. We're told that he had 700 wives and 300 porcupines, I mean concubines, and he had tons and tons of gold and and silver. We're we're talking like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett type of wealth. He was a, a man that celebrities wanted to hang out with. In fact, he was the very biggest celebrity of all, probably the wealthiest man on the face of the planet in his day. He had it all. And yet here's what Solomon says and discovered about stuff. He said, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Anybody want to say amen, you know? So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Have you ever seen one of those abstract posters? You know, the the kind you're supposed to stand there and you pick out a spot on the poster and you just stare at that spot. And if you stare long enough, things start moving on the poster and sometimes they start kind of coming out at you. It's almost like doing drugs without doing drugs. At least that's what Pastor Jay told me. I'm... (laughs) You know, as you start staring and you keep staring, your mind starts playing these tricks on you and all of a sudden there's things seem to be moving. You know, and it's sort of like that in our culture. Our culture tells us, keep looking at stuff, stay focused on stuff. And when we do it long enough, our minds start playing tricks on us. We actually start believing all kinds of lies about stuff, all kinds of myths And in fact, if you look at Solomon's words, you see kind of exposed three myths about stuff. I want to point them out to you. The first myth is when I have more stuff, I'll have more satisfaction. And we believe that too often, don't we? If I could just get that, I'll be happy. That's all. Even though most of us know that Pretty much all the wealthiest people in the world never seem to really be satisfied. They're not really very happy. Our our culture just tells us and tells us and tells us all the time so many different ways. If you buy this, if you own this, if you acquire that, you'll be happy. But the truth is what Solomon says in verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And so here's Really the question, will you believe what God says about stuff? Or will you keep believing what our culture tells us about stuff? 
The second myth about stuff is when I have more stuff, I'll have more significance. I'll be more important. And we find ourselves thinking that people who have bigger houses and who drive more expensive cars and who wear you know, nicer clothes, they're more important, right? But the truth is, verse 11, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Solomon reminds us, and he knew, right? He, the amount of stuff that you own doesn't make you more important. Mostly it just adds headaches to your life. A third myth about stuff is when I have more stuff, I'll have more security. If I just have more money, enough money in the bank, then I wouldn't worry. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us think that? You have a number, and if you could just get there, you would stop worrying. The Bible says that's actually a myth. Verse 12, Solomon says, there's the truth. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. So lots of money, lots of stuff, that doesn't make your worries go away. In verses 13 and 14, he actually says that, you know, you acquire and hoard riches, that can bring harm to the saver. He says, you can make a risky investment, it goes south and you lose it all. And then in verse 15, he sums it up and he reminds us what we all know, but we don't want to think about. We all come, he says, to the end of our lives as naked and as empty handed as on the day that we were born. But we just kind of get caught up in these myths sometimes, right? Right? There's an old story about a little boy who walked into a grocery store and he asked the grocer for a box of Tide. And the grocer thought, he's kind of small to be buying this. So he said, what do you want a box of Tide for? And the little boy said, said well, I want to wash my cat. <laughs> and the grocer said, well, son, I, I think that Tide's a little strong to wash your cat. And the boy said, no, that's what I need. I, I want a box of Tide. And so he sold it to him. The little boy went home. He came back the next day, and the grocer saw him, and he said, how did it go? The little boy said, well, my, my cat died. And the grocer said, you know, I, I told you that Tide was too strong. The little boy said, well, it, it wasn't the Tide. It was the spin cycle that got him. <laughs> sorry, not sorry for all you cat lovers, but... Uh, <laughs> That's kind of what happens, right? I mean, you know, all kinds of people, they get caught up in this spin cycle of stuff, and we look to stuff for our happiness, for our importance, for our security, and our lives begin to revolve around stuff, and we start becoming people that just go round and around, and God did not design us to live that way. And it's just crazy. It's just really killing a lot of people, and to be honest, there are a lot of Christ followers who live like that, and it is just sucking the life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. It is sucking that life out of you. So don't let stuff ruin your life. You see, we shouldn't get caught up and sucked into and spun around by the myths about stuff. What we need to know is what Jesus says about stuff, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, and I'm going to show you uh, three things that Jesus says about stuff. And if you look at this passage and analyze it, what you'll see is there are three couplets, three pairs in this passage, and each couplet presents two options, and each couplet demands one choice. 
And here's what I want you to understand as we get into this. Uh, If you are not doing what Jesus is saying, you will be doing the opposite. In fact, you should write that down. If I'm not doing what Jesus is saying, I will be doing the opposite. There really is no middle ground. Here's what Jesus says about stuff. The first thing is found in verses 19 to 21. Jesus says we need to put stuff in its proper place. And you will never know true freedom, financial freedom, until you start putting your stuff where it belongs. Here's what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you know, people often read these words and they conclude that, you know, Jesus is just opposed to material things or sort of sounds like Jesus is against saving or investing. But I want you to see that is not what he is saying. Look look again. Jesus doesn't tell us not to store up treasures. He actually does the opposite. Do you see it? Jesus commands you to store up treasures. Look again. What he says is this, stop storing treasures in the wrong place. Start storing treasures in the right place. And I want you to understand that Jesus' key problem with amassing material wealth isn't that it's morally wrong, but ultimately that it's just a bad investment. Jesus says, don't build your life around stuff because stuff is vulnerable. He says the moths are gonna get it. And I'm just telling you, you know, you may only wear organic, locally sourced, environmentally friendly and sustainable fair trade fabrics that all the Earth Day organizers would approve of. But it's still gonna come apart. It's still gonna be eaten up by the moths. And that word for moth is kind of an interesting word. It's the Greek word nordos, and we actually get our word Nordstrom from this word. (laughs) Not really, I just made that up, but (laughs) it would be pretty fun if it was true, right, you know? Because some stuff is going to end up with the moths, right? It just is. And then Jesus says, and then some stuff is going to end up rusting out. Now, in that day, people had a few things here and there that were made of metal. I think today when we think of stuff rusting out, we, we probably end up thinking about like our cars. Now, some of you have only lived in California and you really don't understand a reality that some of the rest of us who've lived in other parts of the country uh, understand. Uh, for a, a number of years, my family and I lived in the Midwest. We lived in Chicago. And one of the things you, you learn when you live in the Midwest in a place that actually really has winter is that cars do rust. And that really hit home for me. And actually, it's kind of weird. I remember this sort of random article uh, that appeared one day in the Chicago Tribune. And this article was about a car that was being offered for sale at that time. This is about almost 20 years ago. And there were actually only 30 of these cars that were going to be sold in the United States. And the article said only four of them were going to be sold in Chicago. This car was a Rolls Royce. And at this time, the price tag on this Rolls Royce was $319,000. And the article said it didn't even have a cup holder. 
Now, I looked it up. Today, those cars sell for around a million dollars. They probably still don't have cup holders. But Jesus would say, one day, it'll all be a pile of rust. Now, here's why I remember that. Because at the time I read that article, I was driving an almost 20-year-old Mustang convertible that was rusting out. In fact, there was actually a place in the floorboard under my feet where it was rusted totally through. And, you know, I mean, you could see the ground. I could check the road conditions anytime I wanted. They were, they were right there. And I realized when I read that article, hey, I'm like just a Rolls Royce owner ahead of my time because it's all going to be rust one day. See, Jesus is saying, we are eternal people. But in a 1,000 years, in 2,000 years, whatever you're driving, it's just going to be a pile of rust. See, no one is going to ask anyone else in heaven, what, what kind of rust is your pile? Oh, I, I, I have a Lexus pile. <laughs> and no one's going to go, oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. I have a Pinto pile of rust. And... See, in 2,000 years, there just won't be any status attached to what pile of rust kind of pile you have. Lexus rust, Pinto rust, it's just all rust. And Jesus is just telling us, he's trying to get us to see stuff is vulnerable. It will wear out. He's telling you, if you build your life around it, you are building your life around something that is not strong enough to sustain your life. Jesus says, instead, you should store up treasure in heaven because heavenly treasure lasts. Heavenly treasure is strong enough to sustain the weight of a human life. So here's the question that these verses ask us. Are are, are you storing up treasure in heaven? And here's the answer. You're either storing it up in heaven or here on earth. Those are the only two options. And whether you want to admit it or not, Whether you want to confront reality or not, you are doing one or the other. One or the other. Which one? Which one? Jesus also says you you will never put stuff in its proper place until you get what he tells us in verse 21, that very familiar uh, phrase, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. This is such a profound statement. Jesus is saying what we do with our stuff always, always reveals the truth about our hearts. It's like Jesus would say to us in our terms today, show me your checkbook, show me your visa statement, open up quicken and let me take a look. I'll tell you where your heart is. Because what we do with our stuff, our money, our possessions never lies. It is a bold statement about what we truly value. In fact, I'll I'll just put it this way. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for over 30 years now. I've been here for over 14 years. And and I wanna tell you, if you really wanna know where my heart is, you, you shouldn't judge my spirituality by what I do up here on this stage. You shouldn't judge it by the fact that I preach and teach God's word because honestly, at root, this is just a skill that God has given me. This is just a privilege and an opportunity that you give me so, so don't give me too much credit. If you want to know where my heart is, then where you'd really find out is by looking at my checkbook, at my visa statement, by looking over my shoulder as I boot up Quicken. Some of you might go, yeah, but man, you should, you should see Pastor Mike's Bible. He's got red and orange and green and yellow and blue in his Bible like it's so used, it's sort of falling apart. He just knows the word of God. 
And God says, yeah, that's just colored pencils. God says, if you really want to know where Pastor Mike's heart is, then you need to look what he does with stuff. He says that about me. He says that also about you. Jesus is saying that to us, but you know, he's also saying something more. What we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. According to Jesus, what we do with our money, with our stuff, determines where our heart goes. You ever thought about that? That means if I want my heart to be in one place rather than another, that's where I need to put my stuff, put my treasures, put my money. See, your heart will always go where your money is, not where your money, your stuff isn't. And if most of your money is in your house, in your mutual funds, in your retirement accounts, in your possessions, in your hobbies, then friends, that is reality. That's where your heart will be. Money always leads, hearts follow. And I just wanna say something, okay? I know where some of you are right now, and I just know this because I've been a pastor for a long time. Some of you are hearing all this right now and you are resisting. Your arms may not be folded out outwardly, but inside they are like this. And you're thinking, no, that's not true. That really isn't true. That can't be true. You're thinking, it's not that big a deal. It really can't be. I just wanna tell you, if you're finding yourself resisting, that's your stuff talking, your stuff talking. And I really want you to listen to what I'm about to say about this because God has, in his word, said so much about money and possessions and material things, about stuff, actually over 2,350 verses. He said so much about it that it is impossible to ignore what he has said and to still be a growing follower of Christ. See, some of us We kind of think following Jesus means we pray a prayer that gets us out of hell, and then we do our best to obey some basic moral rules that we behave in certain ways, and as long as we do that, then we're good with God, and we can do what we want with the rest of our lives. God never says anything like that. See, the Bible says that when you follow Christ, you are accepting that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord means he is Lord of all. He is Lord of everything, every area of your life. That includes your stuff. And so Jesus is really calling us as his followers and saying, you need to surrender your stuff to me. I don't know, you know, maybe you're hearing all this and you're still thinking, yeah, I don't know about all this. I mean, I just, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this money talk in church. I don't really think God and money really goes together. It's sort of like God and politics. You just shouldn't mix them together. They really should stay separate. And if you've ever thought that, here's what I want to say. Chances are you have already mixed God and money. For example, If you have ever, once in your life, prayed that God would help you to sell a house, then you've already crossed that line. When you pray, God, God, I hope they they like our house. I hope they buy it. I hope they they pay the price we need to get. Then you have already crossed that line. Even if it wasn't a deeply meaningful prayer, even if it was one of those kind of you know, almost superstitious prayers that people sometimes offer up. Even if you're not even sure, you know, if there is a God, you might have prayed something like, you know, oh God or Jesus or I don't know, Allah or Buddha or the force or Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me, you're my only hope. Um, If you've ever prayed 
to sell a house or to close a deal or you've asked God to help you get a job, if you have ever thought a religious thought in connection with something you needed or something you wanted, then you have already mixed up God and money. And here's what I want to tell you. That's okay. That's not wrong. God himself, as we are seeing in this passage, puts himself together with money. See, we cannot escape it. It is just reality. What Jesus says, it is a description of reality. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the apostle Paul came to his senses one day. In Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. See, that's the proper perspective. And if you want your heart to be right, then you need to put your stuff in its proper place. You need to recognize that it's temporary. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to possess things. He's just telling us it's wrong for things to possess us. So make sure your stuff is in the proper place. And it either is or it's not. Second thing that Jesus tells us about stuff. Stop playing the comparison game. This is what he writes in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I want to tell you, these verses are actually pretty difficult to understand. There are all kinds of ideas about what they, they mean, all kinds of different slants and angles that people have wondered what Jesus was saying. But I think that Jesus is basically telling us this. He's basically telling us your actions will flow out of your perceptions. Or you could say it this way, we, we do what we do because we think what we think. And he's just saying, if your eye is good, what you take in your body will be filled with light and you will walk in the light and you will do good things and you will live like Jesus lived. But if your eye is bad or your eye is evil, if you look at life through the lenses of greed or envy, then your body will be full of darkness and you will walk in darkness and you will find yourself doing greedy and envious things. And see, what he's talking about is this basic fundamental picture that we all have of reality, of the universe. It's like our mental map. How do we see the world? Now, there are several directions that we could apply this, but I want to focus on one thing that so often drives our obsession with stuff, and it's envy. Envy. You will never be able to live a life of true financial freedom as long as envy is in your heart. And so Jesus is telling us you must stop playing the comparison game. Envy is one of those things no one ever really wants to admit they wrestle with it, but almost all of us do. And envy is just the antithesis of what God wants for us. You see, when your eyes are full of light and your soul is flooded with God's goodness, you will use your light and use your resources to do good things for other people. But when your eyes are always focused on the world's stuff and on what other people have and what you don't have, then your soul starts to get dark and it gets full of envy. You get full of discontentment. You start becoming stingy or driven or unkind, sometimes cutthroat, self-centered, or maybe all of the above. You know, envy in the dictionary um, is sometimes defined as having the evil eye. 
See, envy is always a sin that starts with the eyes. You have a coworker and they close a mega deal and receive a huge bonus. And all of a sudden, your eyes turn toward envy. Or maybe a gorgeous woman walks into the room and all the other women in the room, they give her the evil eye. Or your friend, your best friend gets invited to the prom and all of a sudden you're not so sure you really like her anymore and, and you can just fill in the details, all the examples. Let me give you a, a good definition of envy. You might want to write this down. Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring his goodness in mine. Let me say that again. Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring his goodness in mine. And you know, envy, it just defiles everything it comes in contact with. Envy desires that that no good thing happen to anyone else, be owned by anyone else, or be in a relationship with anyone else. Envy is against anything that might be considered a blessing if someone else is gonna get that blessing. You just can't stand it. That someone else got a good deal and you had to pay full price. That someone else got invited and you didn't. I mean, it just eats you up that someone else's kid made the all-star team and yours didn't. It's the politics, I know it. Or maybe you just can't stand it that someone seated in this room right now has a bigger, nicer, newer house than yours. See, when your eyes go bad, what always happens is you begin to focus more and more on stuff and then darkness always floods your soul. And I'm telling you, friends, if envy goes unchecked, it will have devastating effects in your life. Check out these scriptures. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Do you know that it's impossible to be envious and healthy at the same time? Envy will always just suck the life out of you physically. It, it, I mean, it's one thing. Think about this. It is one thing to let moths eat your clothes, but you're going to have envy rot your bones? See, don't let your eyes go bad. Don't envy. It's just devastating to your heart. And then look what Paul says in Galatians 6, 4. He says, make, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given and, and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself and don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Some of you need to be reminded this, this morning that Satan will do his best And he would love to have us get trapped in that spin cycle of comparison. See, but God is saying to you, just be who I made you. Just do what I've given you to do. Just be your best and be content with that. See, God is just telling you, you are my beloved treasured child. You are the the loved son or daughter of the most high God, let that be enough. See, that's who we are. First John 3, 1 says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's who we are, John says. You see, if you get that nailed down first, your life will be totally different. You know who you are. You're not gonna need to compare yourself with anyone. I mean, how much better can it get than being the treasured child of the most high God, the God of the universe? See, if you want to be financially free, 
You got to stop playing the comparison game. Here's the third thing Jesus says. He says, use your stuff to please God. And we're going to talk more about how this can happen in the weeks that are ahead. But if you want to find financial freedom, you have to learn what the purpose of your stuff is. And the purpose of your stuff, ultimately, just like the purpose of all of your life, is to please God. Here's what Jesus writes or says, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is just reminding us that he is the only one that matters, that you don't need to please anyone else, that you should live your life for an audience of one. Jesus just, he wraps up this whole thought about stuff by saying you must have one focus. And he, he tells us you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. It is impossible. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't do both. You can't serve God and money. And so you have to make a choice. And here's the thing. Everyone makes a choice. You've already made a choice. You are making a choice. And the question is, is it the right choice? If you've been making the wrong choice, will you start making the right choice? Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. It's kind of like that great theologian, Bob Dylan, once said, you got to serve somebody. And so Jesus says, choose to serve God because God's the only one whose opinion counts. He's the only one worthy of our affection and our devotion of our worship. Do you see that stuff is not an altar that's worth bowing down to? Jesus himself said, as the Son of God, I seek not to please myself. I only seek to please the one who sent me. The Apostle Paul said that our purpose in life is to please God, not people. God's the one who examines the motives of our hearts. And so God says, I want you to pursue me. I want you to live for me and long for me. I want you to long for my stuff, not your stuff. I want to be your top priority. It's sort of like God is saying to us through Jesus, look, listen, here's what I know. I know that your heart always follows your stuff. And God says, I don't want to compete with your stuff. I want your heart. And because I want your heart and your heart always follows your stuff, then I want you to surrender your stuff to me. Because God says, once you surrender your stuff, all your money, all your savings, all your possessions, whatever, he says, once you surrender everything to me, then I have your heart. God is not after your money. I mean, think about that. Really? God is saying, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. I'm God. I mean, I can't even wear that. <laughs> and I don't want your house. Have you ever seen my house? Why would I want your house? God says, I don't need your stuff. I want your heart. Some of you might read this last statement about serving God and money and kind of think, well, that kind of seems like the wrong comparison. Shouldn't it be God or Satan? Isn't that the issue? I want you to stop and think about it. Why did Jesus not say you cannot serve both God and Satan? And the answer to that question is because the real conflict at the bottom of our spiritual struggles, the real issue at the root of all the things that we deal with has to do with our stuff. 
This is the baseline, fundamental, foundational issue that you and I, every one of us, wrestle with every day. It is the issue you will have to to deal with. You will have a master. And you have to decide who that will be. Will you serve your stuff, your accumulation of wealth? Will you serve protecting your stuff, insuring your stuff, having more stuff, making sure your kids have more stuff, making sure your grandkids have enough stuff? Or are you going to serve stuff and hope that I help you serve your stuff? You know, that's really how some of us live our lives. We serve our stuff and we ask God to come alongside us while we're doing our thing and help us out. Sound backward to anybody? God says, I want you to surrender to me and serve me. God says, you cannot have it both ways. There was a book written a few years ago by a Princeton sociologist named Robert Wuthnell, and the book was called God and Mammon in America. And one of the things that he said in that book is that there is little difference, according to the research, little difference in the financial behavior of people inside the church compared to people outside the church. You see, one day, and it's coming, one day you're going to stand before God. And God's going to ask you how you did with stuff. And if we have lived our lives focused on stuff, filled with envy about stuff, serving stuff instead of God, I just wonder on that day, how are we going to justify that? I suppose we could say, well, I read that book by the Princeton sociologist, and he said that's what all the other people who are Christians did. And, you know, I was like them. We went to church together. We read the Bible together. A lot of people around me did it, and so I did it too. Now, I kind of think that won't carry a lot of weight with God because it didn't carry any weight with my mom. You know, um, you know, if I told my mom the reason I did stuff that I shouldn't have done was because all the other kids were doing it. My mom said things like, and maybe your mom did too, well, if all the other kids were jumping off a cliff, <laughs> would you jump off a cliff? I mean, if that doesn't work with mom, you really think it's gonna work with God? What should we do with our stuff? I'm gonna give you some good news. Some good news. And it's really good news. Here it is. You can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. Jesus says, going back to the beginning of what we've read, store up for yourselves. And I want you to notice that, for yourselves. God wants something for you. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why Why does he say that? Because it's right? No, he says it because it's smart. It's really a pragmatic argument. Treasures in heaven last. It's really a logical argument. God is not against us storing up treasures. He just wants us to do it the right way with something that lasts. So relocate your treasures from earth to heaven. Store up treasures for yourselves. God wants you to do what in the end is really the best for you. Because when your heart is focused on him and his glory, you benefit the most. We're going to talk about this more in the weeks ahead, but let me just put this thought out out there for you to think about. Each of one of us was made for a person and for a place. Jesus is that person and heaven is that place. 
And we will never be satisfied with any person less than Jesus. And we will never be satisfied with any place less than heaven. And so today, you can start finding your satisfaction, finding your significance, finding your security in the only one who will give that to you, and that is Jesus Christ. You can start today. Jesus just invites us to a life where we use our stuff to please God and to bless others. And it's not about us, it's about him. And it's a great, great investment opportunity. Which would you rather have in the end? Earthly treasures that don't last, don't satisfy, or treasures in heaven far beyond anything you can have on this earth that will all last forever. Jesus gives us the choice what we do with our stuff. And it is a matter of the heart. Where's our heart? Where's our heart? Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Heavenly Father, um, we confess to you that we, we struggle with stuff and our hearts get all twisted up about stuff. And there's a lot of us, Father, that if we're honest, we'll admit to you that we've been serving stuff rather than you. And so, Lord, would you help us today? Would you help us to see reality, to see truth, and to respond accordingly? Help us to do, Lord, what in the end is is best for us. And that is to surrender our hearts to you. And whatever you tell us to do in every aspect of our life, that's what we're going to do. Lord, I pray for everyone who's wrestling with this and trying to understand what it means. Lord, we know that you are such a gracious God and so patient with us. Help us to listen to you. Help us to do what you tell us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, who loved us so much that he gave his his very life on the cross for our sins. It is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said,